This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Gary Bain, and I'm joined by what has been recently been described as that curmudgeonly old bastard, Peter Hart. Oh, thanks, Gary. Very kind of you to recognise many of my qualities. I think curmudgeonly suits you down the ground. It's actually a compliment. I quite like bitter, twisted old yes. bastards or whatever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, what are we doing today, Gary? Well, today, Pete, we're going to continue the series... Uh, on the second Royal Norfolks, and this time it's the Battle of Kahima. Yeah, a first of four on this battle. Uh, we'd forgotten about the Norfolks, hadn't we? <laughs> <laughs> no, we'd just rescheduled them. <laughs> right, so where were we up to? Well, the second Royal Norfolk Regiment, fine body of men, they're part of 4th Brigade, and which division are they in? That's second division, and uh, last time that uh, we remembered to talk about them, they they were participating in a lengthy training period in India in January 1944. Well, up to yeah, the 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 the, 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 the last time we talked about them, yeah. they were participating in a lengthy training period in India up to January 1944. That's perfect, Gary. Your reading getting really good. Thanks, mate. Oh, don't know how you do it. Now, uh, it, it's as well that uh, they were coming to the end of their training. Why was that then, Gary? Why? Well, Why? Because during 1943, the Japanese had been building up their strength in Burma. And it was becoming obvious that at some point in 1944, they would launch an assault on the jewel in the British Imperial Crown. Birmingham. India. Oh. Birmingham's a jewel in many talks. Yeah. Right. Now... Uh, the, uh, actually, they didn't wait long, <laughs> if you see what I mean, because the, the Japanese launched an offensive and it was intended to burst out of Burma, seize control of the, well, it's really important, crucial bit of British base at Imphal, uh, which is in the Indian border state of Manipur. I, I wouldn't have known that, but for reading it, would you, Gav? No. Uh, so what's happening? Uh, how do they organise it? Well, on the 6th of February, their 55th Division Group started a diversionary offensive in the Arakan with the intention not only of destroying the British forces there, but of sucking in any reserves which might otherwise reinforce the Imphal Plain. 
The main Japanese attacks on Infel began in early March as their 33rd division attacked towards, I think it's called Tildum or Tildum. Tildum to me, but yeah. The 15th division thrust towards Infel, whilst the 31st division was given the task of capturing Kohima. That's what we're going to be focusing on. But the biggest battle is actually around Infel. Now, uh, so the British, I suppose they were caught napping as usual, were they? Yeah, they were caught a little bit on the hop. Um, they were under the command of Major General Sir William Slim. We and, like him, he was at Gallipoli. And he had already made the wise command decision that the 17th and 20th Indian Divisions would fall back to the Infall Plain, where they would join the 23rd Indian Division to create a self-contained defensive block. And that's, uh, they might be isolated, but they'd be resupplied by air if necessary. Uh, uh, and remembering, of course, that the Japanese, their lines of communication would be a living nightmare by this time. It'd stretch, they'd stretch a miles and miles. But, uh, what, had, uh, what had Slim possibly forgotten? Well, he'd not spotted the serious nature of the Japanese threat to Kohima and beyond it, the major supply centre of Dimapur. Now, as a result, the only troops defending the crucial position of Kohima when the Japanese arrived in strength on the 4th of April 1944 were a scratch garrison force distributed on a series of hills and spurs which together formed the Kohima Ridge. Now the, the original defensive positions they're, they're on IGH Ridge, their names are sort of obviously given by the army most of them, IGH Ridge, Garrison Hill, uh, round the district commissioner's bungalow, the Kuki Picket, FSD Hill, this ridge, <laughs> this, that ridge, this and that. No, this ridge. D-I-S ridge, sorry. Jail Hill and GPT ridge. GPT ridge will be very important later on in about four, three episodes time. Sorry, I wasn't listening. Could you repeat that? No, I bloody couldn't. Uh, now, all these places, they become famous in the Battle of Kingwood, don't they? Uh, just, you know, even you've heard Never of them. Never heard of them. Now, the first contact, that's made in the area of the Aradura Spur. That's before you get to Kima. On the night, on the night, evening time, nighty time, beddy boys time, of uh, 3rd of April. And and things then, it's, it's built, the Japanese, they move quickly, don't they? Yeah, by the morning of the 5th of April, the elite Japanese 58th Regiment had established itself in the area of the Naga village. And in the, in the afternoon... GPT Ridge had been seized, and next morning they overran the defensive positions on Jail Hill. Now I, I have to be honest, I'm not. This is not our period of history, is it? It's not our, uh, and we we need a map. Some uh, people say that we don't have a period of history. <laughs> a lot of people have said that, but we'll put a map up of this because it, it's clearly you need it to understand what's going on. Now, uh, that, so it's lucky that uh, this scratch force gathered round the, uh, these hills uh, were stiffened by the arrival of the 1st, 4th Royal West Kent. That, that's part of 161 Brigade. Uh, where's the rest of 161 Brigade? Well, they were establishing a box at Jotsoma, which was roughly three miles from Kohima itself. Now, nevertheless, it's, it's obvious that the situation was still desperate. I'm making my desperate noise, can you hear? And the British 2nd Division was ordered up to the Kohima front. Now, when the movement orders arrived, the Norfolks, they'd just uh, they'd been, they'd done another period of jungle training in the Balgarm area, which is where the British Army did jungle training until quite recently, I think. And they moved up to Bangalore. Um, it's a good job you read that, because I thought it said in the Belgium area. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
<laughs> Many of the lads, after their hill, tra- uh, their their training, had, had been sent to local hill stra- stations on local leave. They're all recalled in massive haste, and uh, and that last minute preparations are going on in extreme secrecy. And you're going to be Sergeant Walter Gilding. He's in B Echelon of the Second Norfolk's. We were all told that we were not to mention anything about what might be happening. The two div signs had to be taken off all vehicles, but the strange thing is afterwards, after all this hush-hush business, it apparently had been given out that the Japanese said that they had heard that the crack 2nd British Division were bound for Kohima in Fall. It was a bit of a laugh in the battalion that everything was all hush-hush, yet the Japanese knew all about it. Now, scale of distance is quite interesting in this, isn't it? Uh, Because I was shocked when I read that they moved the first 875 miles by rail uh, to uh, Amado Road near Calcutta. And then they're still miles away, so that the next 600 miles they go uh, to the divisional concentration area at Dimar. And uh, And they travel travel by air. By air, that's it. And, And... I'd forgot, this is a sign of how things are moving on. They reached that concentration area on the 10th of April. Uh, now, how did they get there? They're flown in battered old American Dakotas. Well, they're not that old, but they, they appear old, if you see what I mean. Uh, and ca- commandos, I've never heard of them, provided by the Americans. Uh, now, uh, I'm going to be... Who am I going to be? Well, Tom, who you're, introduce me to myself? You're going to be Lieutenant Sam Horner, HQ Company 2nd Norfolk. Uh, Norfolk, who no, was quite no. frankly... Nonplussed. We were going to be flown in. The one thing we'd never practised. We'd practised moving in every other conceivable way, except in aeroplanes. So we got our work. <laughs> so we got to work out tables for all our kit, our specialist kit, and everything that would fit on a Dakota. We were given the load that a Dakota would carry. Then we had to work everything out. Well, we tried. I mean, how much does a wireless set weigh? I didn't know what what anything weighed, but we sort of got there in in a vague way. Very vague, I might say. They guessed, didn't they, Gary? Um, I said, Sergeant White, you and I and two other signalers will go on our plane with all our wireless sets, the batteries and all the things that we really must have, and we'll stick with them. To hell with the rest. That didn't make anything like a plane load, and the rest of it was made up with reserved three-inch mortar ammunition. I thought that was an unfortunate choice. <laughs> if we crashed, it would be the most magnificent explosion. Blimey. Now, the men, they found it an interesting experience as they sat on the rough seats. they didn't complain. Almost all of them flying for the first time. And I'm going to be Sergeant Bert Fitt of B Company, 2nd Norfolk's. We had to go over range of hills to get to Dimapur, and you would be flying along quite happy. All of a sudden, the plane would just drop as it was dropping out of the sky. It would go down about, oh, some 20, 30 feet, more than that, and your heart used to come up to your mouth. Then you'd drop down in these valleys, and of course, then away you'd go again. There was no danger to it, not as far as we knew, but it was rather a thrill. Now, they did rather notice the jungle beneath them. I mean, they must have thought, hmm. And I'm going to be Private Dick Fiddermans, who's an old favourite of ours from the Second Norfolk's. He said, you just couldn't believe it. The thing that was going through everybody's minds was, where the bloody hell are we going to land? It was just like the sea, only green. Yeah, you, you, you quite like Dick, don't you? Oh, I've not responded to that childish 
Now, when they did land, they found that it was chaos as usual, with order and counter-order leading as usual to disorder. And I'm going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel of D Company, 2nd Norfolk. Now, this is going to test your accents, because normally you do the accent you've just done for fit, because he's another senior NCO. Well, how are you going to respond to this challenge? Somebody came round with a box of tracer ammunition. He's not from Lancashire. <laughs> Everybody was given a few of these and we were told to put one for every three bullets in the magazines of the Bren guns. So everybody was busy loading these up. And just when we finished, a message came round, one in every five. They obviously hadn't got enough to go round. So the whole lot were emptied and we put one in five. Having completed that, around came the message, one in seven. They kept us going all night. Dear, oh dear. That's real soldier's language, dear, oh dear. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he said that. Now, by this, t by the time they got there, which, as I just said, was tenth uh, uh, of April, Dimapur, the situation further forward at Kahima Run that was getting that was getting worse and worse. Uh, they not only cut off the garrison of Kahima, they'd also cut off the one six one brigade box at Jotsoma. Uh, now, Major General John Grover, he was commanding Second Division, and he gave. Vic Brigadier Victor Hawkins of the 5th Brigade, the task of leading the way. They were to open the road to Jotsoma. Now, that's interesting because the War Museum interviewed both of those gents. Well, the, 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 the BBC interviewed Victor Hawkins and John Grove was interviewed by the War Museum for uh, the First World War interviews. So it's funny how names come up. Um, now, now, so uh, so 5th Brigade is going to open the way to Jotsoma. So they'd already set off and come into contact with the Japanese in the Zubza. Zubza sector. Now behind them, the 4th Brigade, which included the Norfolks, began the move up to Prithima, which was some 28 miles along the uh, Dimapur-Kahima Road. John Howard had been appointed as intelligence officer to the whole of the 4th Brigade, but he still kept up his close links with the Norfolks, and you are going to be Captain John Howard, intelligence officer, headquarters 4th Brigade. So I'm super intelligent. Yes. <laughs> I have never before or since been so excited in my life. The impression that the whole business was yet another exercise was hard to shake off. Jack Randall, as bored as ever to outward appear, was as keen as mustard with B Company. He too still had difficulty in believing that he was not on an exercise, being doubtful whether he should demolish some building that obscured his line of fire. The brigadier reassured him that he could do as he wished in this matter. <laughs> Now, after training so hard and for so long, this kind of reaction is difficult to avoid. And once more, <coughs> you're going to be Lieutenant Sam Horner. It was an interesting commentary on one's training. Always clear up afterwards. Make sure everything is neat and tidy. Don't leave any rubbish anywhere you've been. Hand in all the spare equipment that you haven't used. Until I realised how different it was, it struck me that there was stuff all over the road. Signal stores, all sorts of things just dumped and left. Nobody had cleared anything up. Terrible mess. Everything was in. I thought this was disgraceful. That was my immediate reaction. How disgraceful this is. Yeah, well, it's different, isn't it? War from peace, yeah, or training. Now, the Norfolks, they also made the acquaintance of the Naga villagers who inhabited the area. The Nagas had a strongly developed cultural identity, but to uncultured British eyes, they appeared primitive. Well, you're going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel again of D Company. They were very fierce-looking little chaps, but friend very friendly. Everybody dressed the same, but when I say dressed, it was nothing more than a little apron at the front and an even smaller one hanging round the back. Most of them had a big ivory bangle on their arm. 
One or two of them had bones through their noses. They all wore rather strange, just below the knee elephant hair, sort of tight and then slackened off, so that when they walked it bounced up and down. They pierced their ears at a young age. I don't know what they used to put in them before we arrived, but while we were there, it was rolled up woodbine packets, about an inch and a quarter in diameter, poked through each ear. They carried a spear and a machete. They were so fit because every step they took was either up or down, so their calf muscles were huge, just like rugby balls. That's no exaggeration. They were tremendously fit. They lived very primitively. The villages on the side of the road were a little bit more modern. Some of them had roofs made out of flattened tin cans used for tiles. Walls would be nothing other than bits of timber and straw. Anything they could lay their hands on. But once you got off the road and deeper into the hills, it was like going back a thousand years. It was quite incredible. Now, up on the Kahima Ridge in front of everybody, the, the, the garrison troops are really fighting like mad. They were trying their best, but the Japanese pushed forward. They managed to get themselves not only on Jail Hill and GPT Ridge, but they also captured DIS Ridge on the 13th of April. Slowly but surely, the perimeter of the Kahima garrison shrinking. Wave after wave of Japanese attacks. And, and the British are overstretched uh, and, and are often overlooked. They're starting to be in terrible position. Now, that, that, so that's, that's, that's a real story. And one day we may come back to it. But then meanwhile, the Norfolks have their first contact with the Japanese. And that's at dawn on the 14th of April. And the person involved is Sergeant Hazel, Fred Hazel. That's you, Gary, who'd been ordered on a detached assignment. And he was to escort some tanks up to the advanced 5th Brigade positions at, at the village of Zubza. It, it's going to be an exciting night for you, Gary, I think, this one, isn't it? <laughs> Sergeant Fred Hazel. That evening, just as we had stopped and were moving off the road into a small village, Bob Scott was on the wireless set. He came off and he looked around. I stood head and shoulders above everybody else and he said, Hazel, come here. I went over to him and he said, I got a job with you this evening. Three tanks I wanted for an assault tomorrow morning by the 5th Brigade. They'll be coming here and I want you and your platoon to escort them up to the 5th Brigade. Hand them over and come back at first light. I said, right, sir. Now, Hazel's men, they piled into two trucks and accompanied by the uh, antiquated-looking tanks in the pitch dark along the tortuous road. And Sergeant Fred Hazel went on to say, As we got closer and closer, you could hear the sounds of gunfire and grenades going off. Then somebody bobbed out with a torch, flashed it, and we pulled up. He said to me, put the tanks in there. There was a little bit of flat ground, about the only bit of flat ground I saw in the whole time we were there, about the size of a football pitch. I put the tanks in the form of a triangle, well and truly spread about. But this little fellow didn't tell us where everybody was. He just disappeared. So there we were, with no knowledge of where the Japs were or where the 5th Brigade was. Having, such the tanks out, having stuck the tanks out in a triangle, I put a section around each tank. We hadn't dug in up to that stage. We'd had no reason to dig in. Of course, having come up into the battle area, we should have dug in, but we didn't dig in. That was my first mistake. Now, they're there overnight. Nothing happens. And then next morning, a corporal uh, in his, one of his sections reports he's seen a party of Indians moving in the trees. And uh, Hazel was uh, pretty curious about this. And uh, once again, you're Fred Hazel of D Company. I said, oh, how do you know they're Indians? He said, well, I couldn't understand what they were saying. I said, I'll come and have a look. 
I quite casually got up and strolled the length of this area, climbed up the slope into the trees. By that time, it was broad daylight. I heard voices on my left, and coming towards me, not more than 30 yards away, was an Indian of the Assam Rifles. He was talking over his left shoulder, so he was looking away from me. When I looked, there was a bloody great Jap officer, big broad fellow, and behind him I could see all these little hats bob bopping up and down. Then, of course, just to cap it all, I realised I'd left my rifle behind. Dear, oh dear, the thoughts that passed through my head at that moment. My God, you've got a short war, laddie. I couldn't stay there because they would pass within two feet of me, so I kept one eye on them and one eye sort of swivelling down to the ground as I walked backwards. I didn't want to tread on any twigs and alert them. Now, uh, Hazel gets his way back to the, the tank lager and uh, when he's there, he warns his men um, and he finds the t- the tank crews this is i've just done something on the tanks they were uh, fast asleep in their tanks and couldn't do anything for a while uh as fred goes on like this i was thinking there was nine of them at that stage i said nobody fire until i give the word i got my rifle and waited for the nine to appear it became nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen sixteen seventeen Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the end, we had a hundred of them lined up. As the first one started to disappear from view into the woods again, I fired, and everyone then joined in with rifle and bring guns. Well, in fact, not everyone opens up, do they? Um, because there's one chap, just for the minute, his, his courage fails him. And again, you're going to be Fred Hazel. On day one, you could tell those you could rely on and those you couldn't rely on. I had a Bren gunner, six foot away from me, in a monsoon trench, and he never fired a shot. 
I said to him, give me that gun, expecting that he would run out and give it to me, but he never budged. I went and grabbed it off him and ran back into my little slot, only to find that he hadn't even got a magazine on it. I said, pass me the magazine. He just threw them out and they landed in between us. He was grey. In the end, I said, go down on the road and watch the road to make sure that nobody pinches the trucks. Well, I think the road was pretty safe, so I got him out of the way. I think he was very grateful. Yeah, it's an isolated case, and, and, and there's no, no no one knows what was going on in that chap's mind. Most of them open up with a will, and uh, again, Fred tells, tells what happens to them. After the first few shots, they dived into the trees and returned the fire. The whole exchange of fire must have lasted about an hour, and then it petered out. I had three of the lads hit. We had no idea of how many we'd killed. Someone from 5th Brigade was aware of what was going on and had sent for the ambulances. The three wounded were taken away. One of them had been wounded in France during the retreat to Dunkirk. He got shot in the backside. As he passed me on his stretcher, he sort of sat up, beamed at me and said, I've been shot in the arse again. I wondered if it was his custom to stick his arse in the air and get it shot at. <laughs> right, uh, the new veterans. Well, they, these guys are veterans now because a lot of these hadn't been in action before. The Norfolks had, <coughs> but they hadn't. And uh, you're going to be Fred Hazley. Now he's going to go back and say what's happened. Sitting on the roadside was the colonel with the brigadier. The moment the trucks pulled up, his batman came rushing over and said, Bob wants to have a word with you. I thought to myself, crumbs, now what have I done wrong? I <laughs> went over to him and he said, when bloody hell have you been? I said, well, we ran into a little bit of trouble. He said, I know I've had it all, chapter and verse on a telephone. I thought I'd better tell him. I said, I lost three men wounded. He said, do you know how many you killed? I said, no. He said, it was 34. I call that bloody good odds. Now, for the next uh, few days, the battalion, the, the Norfolk, are carrying out a load of patrols, checking the vicinity for... for well, they're looking for Japanese infiltration, aren't they? And there's some minor skirmishes, but we don't need to worry about them. Most, most of the patrols are uneventful. Uh, but it's all experience, isn't it? And experience is crucial. Experience in the jungle, experience of active service conditions. It's not the same as training in the Belgaum, is it? No, in the 5th Brigade they found progress difficult, but on the 15th of April succeeded in breaking through to the 161st Brigade box at Jotsama. Ooh. Uh, meanwhile, further forward at Kahima, the, the perimeter's uh, shrinking again. Uh, the Japanese, uh, they take FSD <coughs> Hill, oh, sorry about that, and straight across they grab Kuki Picket. That's on the night of the 17th of April. What's left? Is there anything left? Well, all that remained was Garrison Hill, the hotly disputed area around the uh, DC's bungalow and IGH Spur. However, um, spoilers, spoilers, this marks the high water mark of uh, Japanese success, really, doesn't it? Because the next day, the artillery of 2nd Division b begin hammering the Japanese lines. And uh, a column of tank, tanks, accompanied by the 1st first, first Punjab Regiment, forces their way along in, and into the perimeter of the Kahima. Uh, and you know things the, the roads only briefly open though to make this clear uh, and uh, Japanese units still in considerable strength all around the hills and valleys running down from the Marema Ridge between Zubza and Kahima but the Punjabi they're just in time the, the reinforcements they're just in time the tanks don't stay uh, they're just escorting them um, there's something else going on uh, can you explain the next bit because I can't pronounce any of the names 
Well, the, the commander of the Japanese 31st Division, uh, Lieutenant General Kotuko Sato, uh, he was starting to come under increasing pressure from his own superior officers. The Japanese 15th Division had failed in its initial attempts to break into the infall box, and Lieutenant General Renya Mutaguchi, in command of the 15th Army, called upon Sato to send a regimental group of three battalions with supporting artillery to support the 15th Division in their next attack on Imphal. So, uh, the, uh, they, they, were, they were moving troops from Kohima to Imphal, because uh, let's make it clear, Imphal is the crucial battle really, isn't it? Um, so what's the subtext here? What's the change? What, what does this mean? Well, as Sato struggles with his twin responsibilities of taking the Kahimo Ridge and reinforcing the even more strategically significant Imphal offensive, he appears initially to have intended to carry out Mutaguchi's orders, but he's fatally undermined by the sheer bloody-minded resistance of the remnants of the Kahima garrison. So the Japanese f- attacks continue on Kahima Ridge, and, and, and it's so ridiculous that actually, you know, the, the district commissioner's tennis court becomes a tactical objective. I mean, it is farcical at times. Um, much coveted. DC, as we now know him. Oh, yeah, DC, yeah. Um, on the 20th of uh, April, the 1st, 4th Royal West Kent are relieved by the 1st Royal Berkshires and the 2nd Durham Light Infantry, a fine body of men, truly fine body. And they're both from 6th Brigade of 2nd Division. Uh, the Japanese, do they give in? No, they still uh, fling themselves forward, uh, culminating in a final all-out attack on the 23rd of April, which, in a sign of Sato's increasingly uh, increasing desperation used the battalion supposedly earmarked for Infal. So those three battalions aren't sent to Infal. Well, so yeah, wow. Um, the Durhams, they're pressed hard uh, almost to breaking point but Garrison Hill uh, hel- is held and they, they inflict heavy casualties on the Japanese. Uh, and, and from this time there's a bit of a sea change in what's going on, isn't there? The, 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 uh, the Japanese have changed their priorities. What's their priority now around Kohima? Well, it's no longer capturing the rest of the Kahima Ridge. It's it's now keeping what they had. So it's moved from an offensive to a defensive posture. Attacks and counterattacks are still made, but Sato's increasingly worried by the absence of supplies and ammunition. And he, from that point on, considered his primary role as being to prevent the Allied advance along the Kahima Road to break into and relieve the infall box. And however... However, and this is significant, he doesn't send that, those three battalions to assist uh, Mutaguchi's attack on Imphal. The, the battle for Kahima is linked with the, the battle for Imphal. The, the initiative, who do you think's got it at this stage? Well, it's clearly passed to the British, but was the second division strong enough to seize it? Well, it's not that big a formation, is it? Now, Major General Gro- John Grover, the, the commander of second division, He's got a lot of problems himself. Um, he's, 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 got, he's, he's trying to eject the Japanese from the strong points in Kahima area. But, uh, but what, what's the situation of his, his troops? What, what's happening, Gary? Well, in brief, the 6th Brigade was fully engaged in holding the vital perimeter positions on the Kahima Ridge. Right. The 5th Brigade were faced with an extraordinarily difficult task in clearing the Marima Ridge towards Naga Village, which is south of the Kahima Road, while the 4th Brigade had replaced the 161st Brigade in the Jotsoma uh, box area. So it's only really them that are free, the, the 4th Brigade, which includes, of course, the Norfolks. Now, it's a complicated... Everything's 
really complicated, but Grove is becoming aware that Japanese have got formations of unknown strength, <laughs> known and uncertain, operating the foothills of Mount... What's that? What's that, what's that called? Pulibadze. Pulibadze. Uh, that's to the north of, of Kohima, and generally southwest of the, of, of the Kohima Ridge. Um, uh, I'm not sure that's the right way around. But no. And given the, have a look on your maps, boys and girls. And given the natural strength of the Assam country and the Japanese genius for the construction of interlocking defensive position, it was obvious that uh, they needed a lot more troops than 2nd Division had, or they needed a tactical initiative that had a lot more skill and uh, initiative than you might expect from the British if they were to break the stalemate. So what does Grover do? Does he come up with anything good? Well, absolutely. His response was indeed audacious. A frontal attack would be suicidal, so instead he sought to move around the Japanese southern flank. The 4th Brigade, commanded by Brigadier William Goshen, uh, lest the uh, the first eighth Lancashire Fusiliers were to launch a right hook behind Pulubadze down onto uh, Aradura Spur to cut the road linking Kohima to Imphal. So, in other words, to establish themselves right across the Japanese lines of communication. To lead the way, the brigade was assigned the 143rd Special Service Company under Major McGeorge. Well, we won't hear much about them because we concentrate on the Norfolk. Now, this manoeuvre, this operation is codenamed Operation Strident. And uh, it, 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 you'd never try it normally, would you? Would, would you try it or, or is this desperation? No, the country was mountainous in the extreme, with Pulabadzi standing proudly Ooh, at no erect. less, no less. Was it erect? It was extremely erect. It was 7,522 feet of erectness. Lovely. Now, this perhaps would not have been such a problem if its slopes had not been slashed by a myriad of, sleep, of steep gullies, tumbling down covered in, in thick and what was, by any conventional wisdom, impassable jungle. Now, it was hoped that the very unfeasibility of the operation would be its own protection. How does Where that heard that before? I, I see to Gallipoli, uh, various, uh, yeah. Um, I'm not sure this, normally this doesn't work. So, surprise uh, is the objective. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> if you like, I'll tell you who is surprised. Who's surprised? Well, the Northwicks themselves, they're completely caught on the hop by the sudden orders to march into the green. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Scott was actually engaged in a series of wreckies in case the battalion was called from reserve to take part in attack. And it was only on his return that his second in command, Major Henry Conder, was able to tell him that the battalion had been given new orders. And once more, you're going to be Lieutenant Sam Horner of HQ Company. He's a signal officer, so he says this. Robert Scott called an air group. The order group would be the CO and his tactical headquarters complete. The intelligence officer, the signal officer. Then all the company commanders and all the specialist platoon commanders, mortars and so on. The gunners, because each battalion had a battery attached to it. The battery commander would be there. Perhaps one of the sappers, any special people. We met in the open and he said, now then, Ardus, here's a situation. He gave us a good situation report, and the intelligence officer did a bit of that as well, telling everybody exactly where we were and what the Jap position was, and ours and everything, which we'd not had before that. The form of it was, first of all, information. Who all, who we all were. Who am I, Gary? Who we all were, and roughly what was happening, and what we were going to do. 
the situation, which meant what was known about the enemy, more about our own troops and the whole position. Then, execution. That's a bit of an ominous word, Gary. Then execution, when you got the orders. So that put us really in the picture. Scott said, Now, the 4th Brigade, less than Lancashire Fusiliers, who are detached, the 5th Brigade. So we're only a 2 battalion brigade with brigade technical headquarters. We're going to do a right hook and try and come in behind the Japs. Get on the road that led from Kahima to Infar. Cut the road and shoot them up the arse. It was as simple as that. Now, that was uh, a uniquely Robert Scott gloss on Grover's plan. (laughs) It was unique in a number of ways, Pete. (laughs) Now, the last-minute preparations were chaotic, and in the uh, morass of last-minute instructions, Scott managed to pick a fight with Grover over the vexed issue of tin hats. Well, this this becomes... uh, uh, If you listen to subsequent uh, episodes, you'll... uh, Spoiler, spoiler, this is important. Lieutenant Sam Horner says, then there was a funny little thing about hats on, hats off, which is a great joke. Robert Scott said, Bush hats will be worn. General Grover said, Tin hats will be worn. Then there was a row between Robert and his divisional commander. Robert didn't mind what he said to whoever they were. He said, Well, that's a bloody silly order, sir. They'd be much better if they had bush hats. Much easier for the men. John Grover said, Yes, I hear what you say, Robert. Tin hats it is, and stop arguing. <laughs> so we were hats in, hats on, hats off, and our kit bags. One moment it was bush hats, and it was tin hats, and we ended up with tin hats. So the divisional commander surprisingly won. Now the men were laden like pack horses, as everything they needed had to be carried. There was no question of any kind of transport accompanying them, and I'm going to be Sergeant Fred Hazel once more. We were issued with 100 rounds of ammunition in addition to what we already had. This we dangled round our necks in two bandoliers. Blankets were cut in half. We rolled half up and put it on the back of our pack. Every third man was given a shovel. Every third man was given a pick. And the other third were given two carriers of mortar bombs. I I like that. That's what oral history is good about, isn't it? Because it gives you little details like that. I like that. Now, the the stronger men would carry even more. And who's the strongest man you can imagine? Sorry, I seem to be Robert (laughs) Robert Scott Motor, really. Well, I presume you mean Winky Fit. That's his nickname. I've no idea what that's doing. Bert Fit, yeah. I think we called him Winkle Fit at one point. (laughs) Somebody called him Winkle Fit. Now, he was coming into his own, and he'd been placed in command of number nine platoon of B Company. His personal load would have tested a pack mule, and I'm going to be once more Sergeant Bert Fitt of B Company, 2nd Norfolk's. Around my body, around my web belt, I had grenades all the way round. Other people that could, they, that were strong enough to do it, did the same. We also carried bandoliers of ammunition, which we strung over our shoulders or around our neck. I had about five or six bandoliers, about 50 rounds in a bandolier, I suppose. On top of that, we had our ammunition pouches full. We were carrying anything and everything that we could in the way of ammunition and rations. We didn't expect the climb and the march to be quite as fierce as what it was. He's a, such a character. Now, you get that Fred Hazel, who is uh, a different sort of character, but also a character, he made his own slightly more personal preparations for Operation Strain. 
you said that in a uh, northern accent before. <laughs> Did I? Different Did person you? saying Different it this time, yeah. That was uh, Bob Scott saying that. Now, Sergeant Fred Hazel says this. This truck turned up, so I nipped down there and I bought myself six cans of evaporated milk, half a pound of tea and about three pounds of sugar. My pack was already stuffed tight, but I managed to get this lot in because I didn't want to go on this three-day trek without plenty of brewing up gear. Now, the, the way they were going, they knew there was a sort of track, and I mean sort of track. Uh, you're familiar from Gallipoli with my idea of what a track is. Well, <laughs> yes, uh, and it leads to the Naga village of, of Konoma. I'm going to go for. Now, uh, after that, the, the, the country is considered to be impenetrable. Christ knows what they're going to do. Certainly by any formation of armed troops. And the maps are, uh, uh, they're just, they're just bloody useless. Uh, and who am I going to beat it? You're now going to be <coughs> Captain John Howard once more, the intelligence officer of HQ 4th Brigade. The maps only arrived the night before. We had firstly half-inch maps, uh, that's the old map, and then the maps, which I carried myself up the hill, were, were 1 to 25,000, which is about 2.5 inches to the mile. That was very good as far as it went, but I, I, I was... But it was an air survey, and the areas which are off the edge or coloured differently were an enlargement by the map-making people of the old half-inch. It was only the middle bits which were from a recent air survey. Of course, the air survey bit was only what you could see from air photographs, but as far as they went, they were very good. Although one, was all, one always thought the map was wrong, the map wasn't usually wrong, it was usually bad map reading. Very difficult, of course, in thick country. Now, uh, mm. that's an intelligence officer's idea. Officers and a map. Yeah, never follow an officer with a map. Now, many officers are less than impressed with the maps when they were distributed, and you're once more going to be Lieutenant Sam Horner. <sighs> we looked at them, and there was a map showing where we were going. It was absolutely white because it had never been surveyed. Nobody had ever been there, the Nargis said. They'd, the Nargis said they didn't go there because there was a lot of superstition about it. There were witches and all that kind of thing. All, the, all there was was done from aeroplanes. Uh, was, it was a few little Nalas, watercourses, and the rest of it was white. So it was a fat lot of use having a, net, a map. So you could see what he means. Yeah. I mean, basically, if there's a few streams on it, and the rest of it is just jungle, which is on the map is just blank. So everything was absolutely ready as it could be. Uh, those words, as it could be, are causing me some considerable concern. Now, <laughs> off into the green to face the Japanese at Kohima. And we'll be picking up the next story. There won't be a long gap for this. We've got four on the Kohima and they'll be coming up over the next few weeks. I hope you join us. It gets really, really exciting, but also Horrible, really horrible. Looking Cheers, Pete. That. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast 
for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?